Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. My name is Frank. I'm the host of the show. I discuss and review movies new and old. You can watch the show on YouTube and Facebook under the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. Please rate and review the show on your app of choice. You can email the show at bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. Please visit the podcast website at letmebendyourear.com. All the episodes are available there. On this episode, I'm going to review Oppenheimer, the latest film by writer-director Christopher Nolan. Now, if you've listened to this podcast over any particular period of time, uh, you know I am a big fan of Christopher Nolan. Um, I've only actually reviewed, it's funny since this podcast has aired, I've only reviewed one Nolan film on this podcast, which is Tenant, which is the um, film previous to this one, which came out actually at the height of the pandemic. And you can go back and listen to my review uh, of Tenant uh, on this uh, podcast. I did review it then. My view on Christopher Nolan's film, so if you know his history, you know uh, he came out of the gate directing a film in 2000 called Memento, one of my favorite movies, a fantastic film that he co-wrote um, with his brother, Jonathan Nolan, and directed, uh, starring Guy Pierce. Great movie. Uh, it's told in reverse. The narrative is told in reverse. And it's a... Uh, you know, very, very good movie, very ingeniously constructed. And as if you know, Nolan's, you know, film his basically his his style has been complex narratives. And obviously he, he's got the three Batman films that he directed, um, that are, you know, straightforward action dramas that are fantastic as well. Um, but he's got Inception, you know, he's got a quite a a, a great filmography. Now, after the Dark Knight, so you have the Dark Knight Rises, which I was a fan of, I know a lot of people aren't. Uh, so for me, the films after The Dark Knight have been, I've had varying degrees of my opinions of them. And like I said, I'm not going to give a review of every one. But after Dark Knight, he's, he's done Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenant, and now this film, uh, Oppenheimer. So before I get into talking about Oppenheimer, so my, my view of, of Nolan's films post The Dark Knight and before this one have been, and I tweeted about this um, earlier, the films have all been very interesting, and I always look forward to a Christopher Nolan film. The other thing I've, I've preached on this podcast, and I see it, you know, when you read on film Twitter and online, is, is the importance of original stories being told on screen that people want to come see in the cinema. And of course, if you followed the whole Barbie Oppenheimer kind of hype I know there's a lot of people that are happy about it, that are people that are cynical about it. Uh, I choose to take the opinion, anything that drives people to go to the movie theaters is good. Uh, I am a big fan of the movie experience as a, as a movie fan my entire life. I think the movie theater experience is central to my enjoyment of films. Not that I can't watch them at home or through streaming, which is fine, which is just another way to get to movies, uh, which I think is not bad either, but I would never want to see the movie theater experience go away. And the incredible success of both Barbie and Oppenheimer this opening weekend is a testament that if you make interesting original films, people will come see them, and that's very, very encouraging. So on that side note, I'm very happy to, to, to see that happen this weekend. But again, on Nolan's film specifically, like I said, Tenant, I gave a, a a spoiler alert. I gave a three star out of five of that one. Like I said, you can go back and listen to it. Uh, there were things about it that I loved, but uh, it was just, I thought, too intricate for its own good, in my opinion. And I, I know a lot of people love Tenant. I liked it, but didn't love it. 
So going into this one, I had read a lot of the reviews, which I usually don't try to do, but uh, the hype for Oppenheimer has been massive and the early notices for people that have already been able to see the film before I saw it today uh, have been, for the most part, overwhelmingly positive, uh, which gives me hope. Like I said, I am a huge fan of, of Christopher Nolan. I'm a huge fan of his Dark Knight movies. Um, like I said, Batman Begins, I think, is phenomenal. I mean, the Dark Knight is probably his pinnacle, uh, but Batman Begins, I think, is, is phenomenal. Like I said, Dark Knight Rises is, is great as well. So let's get into this current film, uh, Oppenheimer. So if you know anything... Well, here's the thing about this film. So J. Robert Oppenheimer, anyone that knows any kind of history at all, even if you have a basic knowledge of history, you do know that Oppenheimer was the, as they call him, the father of the atomic bomb. So obviously, if you know anything about American history, specifically World War II, of course, uh, he was tasked with heading the Manhattan Project, which developed the hydrogen bomb. Which, of course, we all know were, were draw, ended up ultimately being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we and what I think me and a lot of people that are watching this movie are going to realize is, other than that, we really don't. Most people don't know much about Oppenheimer, including me. I don't. The, and it's funny. The only other experience I've had in a film with this, and it's been so long since I've seen it, and I may review it down the road since I'm going to be reviewing this movie. And a lot of people don't know it as Fat Man and Little Boy, which of course were the names of the two atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So there was a film, I think it came out in 1988, called Fat Man and Little Boy, starring Paul Newman and Dwight Schultz from the A-Team fame, actually, as Oppenheimer in that film. So that tells that story of the Manhattan Project as well. It was directed by Roland Joffe, a great director who directed The Mission, Killing Fields, um, very good director, and directed this film as well, which I remember it to be very entertaining or good and, and kind of told that story as well. It's been so long since I've seen it. So even seeing this film, Oppenheimer by Christopher Nolan, it's a new experience in the sense that it's been so long since I've seen that film. I saw it in the theater, and I don't think I've seen it again since then. So I'd have to completely rewatch it, and it would be like watching it for the first time because it's been so long since I've seen it. But obviously, my knowledge of, of Oppenheimer is probably like most people's unless they're a scholar of that time, which is you know, the developer of the atomic bomb. So as this film opens, you have Oppenheimer. So the way Nolan does it is he's got about he's got three main narrative strands that are occurring at the same time and it bounces around back and forth in time. So you've got Oppenheimer, the young Oppenheimer studying in Europe, and he is a theoretical physicist and he is pioneering research into quantum mechanics. Now he's in Europe because there's no one taking up that study in America. And of course, the 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 foremost theoretical scientist at, at that time, of course, was Albert Einstein. And of course, his theory of relativity. So Oppenheimer, of course, is kind of the next generation coming up after Einstein. And a lot of his theories that Oppenheimer opined on kind of uh, not discredited, but were a challenge to Einstein's theory of relativity. So basically, for lack of a better term, to apply it to regular stuff, Oppenheimer's a new kid in town, kind of the new genius, and Albert Einstein is the old guard. And as portrayed in Oppenheimer, uh, they have a friendship, I think. I don't know if it's the right word, but it's definitely they, they have a kinship through their shared knowledge of science. And uh, him and Einstein are, are close. They talk about things. And as the movie opens, he is being appointed 
by Mr. Strauss to head a nuclear institute. So this part of the film takes place after the war. So you get that story of him considering taking that position. And this is post-World War II, of course, after the bombs are used. Then you have the story of the young Oppenheimer who's recruited by General Groves of the U.S. military to set up the Manhattan Project. So you have that strand going as well. And um, you also have Strauss in a confirmation hearing. He's being trying to be confirmed to a cabinet post under Eisenhower for Commerce Commission. So they're asking him questions about Oppenheimer. So you have those three narrative strands going at the same time as the movie progresses. So Nolan uses a technique of using color for certain aspects of the film and black and white for other aspects of the film for specific points of view. One is subjective, one is objective. And he talks about that and when he wrote the script, how he was doing that to write it in the first person and to write it in the third person. So he talks about that in interviews before this movie came out. So that those are the narrative strands that are going on. So the first thing I want to say about Oppenheimer is the cast is enormous. Like there are people in there and then there's one cameo uh, that I'm not going to say it's because it's so unexpected uh, for the actor that pay, plays uh, Harry Truman in one scene. But there's cameos by actors, like big actors in this movie. So obviously Christopher Nolan commands a lot of respect in the film world and I think people are anxious to work with him and are willing to do so because one of the things that I've talked about and is about like I said original mid-budgeted films dramas aimed at adults which is exactly what Oppenheimer is uh, a, a drama aimed at adults but the thing is and I talked about this online as well that uh, I'm sure that this is not considered a mid-budgeted film I guess and and I'm using the term probably even from the 80s I, I think for me a mid-budgeted film is anywhere from thirty million to fifty million, assuming a hundred million is a standard on a film. Um, I'm thinking thirty to fifty million is a mid-range budgeted film because that allows you to have lower expectations for profitability on the movie. If you believe the Hollywood economics that you have to double the budget before you break, before you turn a profit, I don't know if I believe that or not, but that's the that's the line that they've always put out there. So obviously, if you have a thirty million dollar film, if you can hit sixty million. And everything after that is going to be profit, you know, and that's before it hits uh, foreign markets. And then, of course, home video, you know, DVD, Blu-ray, etc. So what I did find out, and uh, I think this is correct. I think it's a pretty reliable source. I think the this film was budgeted at $100 million, which I was actually surprised it was that low. But I've read a couple of articles about Nolan and and from what it appears and this is a good lesson for a lot of these people that make these $300 million budget, if you believe that's the budget as well, whether it's a superhero film or something else. It's $100 million, and Christopher Nolan basically says in an interview, I give them a budget, I tell them what we can do it for, and that's why I don't really have much problems with securing financing. Now, granted, one of it is because he's Christopher Nolan, and that, that gets him in the door, but I think what he's trying to say, and I think it's good advice for filmmakers regardless, is he tells them... I'm going to make it for $100 million. I don't need any more money. That's all I need, and I'll get it done for that. And then he delivers. He's very he, he's very pragmatic about that. I think he is uh, someone that is, and I think that's what's been the secret to his success. I think he's, and he, of anybody, has earned the clout to probably say, I need, a two, I need a $200 million budget, $250 million budget, and they would probably give it to him. He'd be probably one of the few people that they would give it to. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes, this is the budget. 
It's still a big budget. Not to say $100 million is not a big budget. But not only does he give them what it's going to cost, he does. He comes in on time and on budget, which is two things that, that movie companies love. And his movies, for the most part, are extremely successful. Now, now Tenet uh, was tough because it came out during the pandemic. I think even with the mixed reviews, a lot of people like Tenet, but I think that was part of it as well. I saw it in the theater. I'm glad I did. Uh, Dunkirk, I don't know what the box office was on that, uh, which a film I liked better than Tenet. But I still have my issues with Dunkirk even as well. Um, one thing I never have an issue with with Christopher Nolan is his visual and technical prowess and the people that he aligns himself with, uh, specifically a cinematographer and his composer. They, they're both fantastic. They both work with him here. They work with him on Tenet as well. The the music in, in Oppenheimer is great and, the, and the, the cinematography is great. So, of course, the technical things that Nolan always does is he's a big believer in IMAX and in this film he's shot on IMAX cameras unfortunately there's not really a true IMAX theater true one because you have IMAX all over the place but they're not the actual true IMAXs and a 70 millimeter IMAX presentation which is what Oppenheimer a lot of them are, are doing are very rare I was lucky to be able to see it in 70 millimeter today when I saw it but uh, I didn't see it in IMAX I'm sure it looks phenomenal in a 70 millimeter IMAX presentation and it adds to the scope of the movie. You get higher resolution, you know, bigger, bigger projection. Uh, so it's great. And he's a big believer in that. He's a big believer in cinema. So uh, that's that's why I have a lot of respect for Nolan. So again, as he's telling these narrative strains of the movie, you get a lot of the story. So you get the young Oppenheimer um, learning his craft from his mentors, studying the quantum mechanics, and ultimately coming to the realization, theoretically anyway, that the collision of atoms would lead to a chain reaction that could create an explosion. So, of course, that's the simple way of, 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 of describing the hydrogen bomb. And, of course, his, his knowledge in that realm gets the attention uh, of General Groves, who is trying to start a project because they come to find out that the, of course, obviously, we're in the midst, in the height of World War II, and there's talk that the Nazis are trying to develop a, an atomic bomb. And obviously, the goal is to make sure that the United States beats the Nazis because the Nazis can't have this before anybody else. So, of course, that's the motivation uh, to get going on this project. And Oppenheimer is chosen for this project uh, by General Groves. So, of course, you've got the military involved here. Oppenheimer comes to the decision relatively early on that one they don't have a lot of time uh, they have about 18 months to get to where they need to get to and the only way that they're realistically are going to get to it is to one of course surround themselves with the best scientists in the world but the biggest thing that happens is he convinces the government to build basically a self-contained town in los alamos new mexico because Oppenheimer believes, of course, that he needs these people in one place focused on one mission and a place where their families can come. Because he believes that if their families are not there, they're not going to be focused on the task at hand. So they end up building this town in Los Alamos, a full functioning town, and they get, they get to going on working on the hydrogen bomb. Now, that's the story. It's, it's told in multiple different ways, through multiple different time periods, through the three narrative strands that I've explained to you. Uh, it's it's a dazzling display of filmmaking craft, first of all. Now, a lot of the reviews online have compared Oppenheimer to Oliver Stone's JFK, 
and I can see after watching the movie why. Uh, JFK is Oliver Stone's not my favorite Oliver Stone movie, but you, it's definitely if somebody says it's his best, it's it's a phenomenal display of directorial virtuosity, as I stated before. Uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. It's a tapestry of of the theories of how JFK was assassinated, who was involved, and Oppenheimer kind of takes that same approach of a large canvas to tell this story of building the bomb of Oppenheimer's reticence once the bomb is there. And a big theme of this film, too, is the political implications. So when you when you combine the military and the political, you know what happens. A lot of times things unsavory occur. And what's the word I'm looking for? Alliances get broken. People get turned on. And uh, your friends become your enemies. And, and all of that is played out in Oppenheimer. Uh, there's a big deal made. And like I said, I didn't know a lot about his personal story. You find out a lot about him. You find out he was um, kind of a suave dude, uh, uh, a womanizer, but very dedicated to what he was doing and uh, dedicated to the country as well. Uh, being Jewish, of course, he's sensitive to what the Nazis are doing. And of course, as a member of the Jewish race, taking that personally and and that's part of his motivation among other things. He's got an ego. They joke about it a lot about how basically all physicists and scientists pretty much have an ego. And to do what you're doing at the level he was doing it and at the, at the intelligence that he had, you have that ego because a lot of what you say is true. And a lot of what you're bragging about is the truth. Uh, so that ego comes with it. All those all those shades are portrayed uh, fantastic by Cillian Murphy in, in Oppenheimer. And you learn about that. You learn about the women in his life. Uh, you have... Um, for um, Florence uh, Pugh that plays uh, Anne Tatlock, who is a communist, you know, a communist uh, activist, uh, that they have a torrid affair uh, that actually um, continues into his marriage um, to um, to his wife, played by Emily Blunt, who does a great job. And then General Groves is played by um, Matt Damon, who's great. He's having a very good year, actually, in, uh, in the movies. He's in another great movie that I reviewed earlier, um, Air. Uh, the Michael Jordan story of going to Nike. So he's great in that as well. Uh, so definitely um, he does what he always does. He's a great actor. He's good here as well. So he is, um, you know, basically ushering this project in as well. And then you have the great Robert Downey Jr. He plays Louis Strauss. So as I stated earlier in the show, so Strauss is intertwined in the story. He's recruiting Oppenheimer in the one strand into this institute post-war he is involved with Oppenheimer as they are trying to figure out what to do as the bomb is getting made, uh, the deadlines to be met, and uh, is an ally to Oppenheimer as well. And like I said, there is a huge cast in this movie. I'm not even going to get into all the people that are in it. I've given, I've given you a couple of people. Like I said, the main cast is Damon, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, and um, Cillian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, but there is a cast of... of a lot of people, big and small, actors that I recognize I was surprised to see in the film. Um, it's just great. So as the movie progresses, like I said, you get all these narrative strands tying together. So the big drive of Oppenheimer is Oppenheimer had left-wing sympathies and even you would say communist sympathies, but as it portrayed in the film and the performance, he he was kind of, what's the term I would probably use? To use a religious term, his personal views were agnostic about it. He 
understood and maybe even agreed with some of the communist or left-wing sympathizers who were looking at it from an American perspective as far as being for the little guy, being for the worker, and not from the worldwide perspective where you had, um, you know, this, of course, the Soviet Union and the things that would happen uh, for human rights under communist regimes. So, but he, he was a great thinker and he would look at all things. And it's funny, I think it does apply. It's funny how it, these things apply today because I think a lot of people are lacking critical thinking. And this movie is all about that. It's all about, of course, with science and what you can prove in mathematics. It's about critical thinking about problems. How do you solve problems? There are multiple ways to attack a problem and trying to find the best solution of a problem. So I think I find it very apropos uh, that the narrative drive of Oppenheimer is his ability to look at things in a non-emotional, scientific way to get the best solution to where you're going, to get the best avenue to reach a solution. And in this case, um, what is the best use of creating this bomb and what this bomb is going to be used for and then questioning the end result. Now, the thing in the movie that's great is it does challenge, the movie challenges Oppenheim's, I don't even know what the word is, kind of his, again, his agnostic feeling toward it. There's there's a lot of characters in the film that push him to try to make a decision, especially people that are not really for this bomb getting created. Not because they they don't understand what's going on and why it's being done, they're worried about the aftermath of what happened when this thing is created. And there are several characters in the film, including his wife, that kind of question him and question his motives and kind of question what effect this will have on the rest of the world for the rest of time. And that's a question that Oppenheimer asked and I think Nolan asked as well. And especially that reticence and that him questioning that openly will come back to haunt him in the third act of Oppenheimer. And that's really the, the drive of the third act of the film where you see the government go after him for his doubts about the bomb and things that were said are used against him and then he is on trial essentially for his reputation and that's the that's basically what you get with this film and let me tell you it's three hours that flew by and you know, if you've listened to any episode in the last year of this podcast, I've harped on this, and I've even harped on it for, for movies that Nolan directed, specifically Tenant, that movies have gotten way long, and that there's nothing, I'm like, you can tell a story in 90 minutes, it's okay. Except when you do it well, like here. And it's it's funny that I've reviewed Mission Impossible, which is two hours and 45 minutes, and loved every second of it. This movie is three, and I loved every second of it. It was fantastic. It was uh, riveting. The acting across the board is fantastic, from the lead performance of Cillian Murphy to Matt Damon to Emily Blunt. And like I said, I'm not even going to get into the cast as much as I normally do because I'd be here for another 20 minutes trying to tell you all the people that are in this movie. Uh, and you can tell, and they all came ready to go. And it's just a riveting portrayal of the making of the atomic bomb and more more than that though it's a story of a person which is always riveting in films like this is a, a person that's driven that's a genius that's 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 on another plane of intelligence from the rest of the world 
and create something that essentially stops a war but unleashes something that nobody i think really wants in the future so it's it's just all of that storytelling is fantastic and it was so great for me when i watched this movie to be that happy about it because like i said i've been i'm a huge fan of christopher nolan i am i have been less enthusiastic about his last couple of movies like i said all interesting none of them bad just i haven't been able to connect to them in a a meaningful way oppenheimer is an exception as i stated when i first got out of the movie today my quick reaction this is this is christopher nolan's best film since the dark knight and uh it's fantastic and i highly recommend you see it on a big screen don't wait for blu-ray or streaming see it in the theater not because I want you to go to a theater, even though I want everybody to see great movies in theater. This is the this movie needs to be seen in a huge theater with a big screen. If you can do seventy millimeter, that's great. It's a fantastic movie with fantastic performances, great technical work all the way around. Like I said, the cinematography, the music actually is great as well. Uh, I know he's used this composer for the last few films. It's just fantastic. The movie is just like I said, the the three hours flew by. It was a fantastic film, and uh, I've been on a roll. Like I said, this is this is one of the best movies of the year. It is one of the best movies of the year, one of Christopher Nolan's best movies. Uh, so again, I've, I've been very fortunate. It's been a very fun summer of movies. I'm actually going to tease. I watched um, Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves for the second time with my son. I watched it by myself. Uh, another surprising film. I'll probably maybe do that for the next uh, episode after this one. Uh, another movie that's not in the theaters anymore, but uh, I'll recommend it. I'll give you a spoiler. It's it's a good movie. I'll go more into that in the next one. But Oppenheimer, check it out. You will love it. If you're a fan of Nolan, definitely check it out. Uh, if you're a fan of, of, of the actors that are in it, um, check it out. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., I'll single out because I think, and people, other people single out, so I'll jump on this train. Not that I forgot, Robert Downey Jr. is a phenomenal actor. He's always been a phenomenal actor. He's been in the Marvel world for so long that you almost forget how good he is. He's fantastic in Oppenheimer as Strauss. He's phenomenal. Uh, that performance alone is worth it. But the, like I said, the, the performances all the way around, and I'm talking about from the lead performances to the smallest performances, uh, are great. Um, another one I'll, I'll put in there is, um, and I didn't recognize it was him until after I got out of the movie, uh, you had... Um, Crumholtz plays uh, his friend Izzy, who who guides him through the entire movie. You meet him early on, and he's a close associate of of Oppenheimer. He's fantastic in the movie as well. Um, Kenneth Branagh's in it. Uh, I said I wasn't going to mention anybody. Of course, now I'm going to start doing it because it's great. He's uh, Niels Bohr, uh, a scientist as well, another physicist. He's the scenes that he's in are great as well. I'll leave it at that. Like I said, there's a, there's a cast of dozens that are fantastic. You know, small roles, big roles, uh, all of them phenomenal and i think all of them just uh, you know excited to work with nolan so on my star review i'm giving oppenheimer four and a half stars out of five so on that scale definitely go see it it's a movie i will see again it is a a wonderful movie Uh, i don't think i'll give it five because five would be perfect it's really good there's nothing i can criticize about it Uh, but again i don't think it's better than the dark i think the dark knight is probably still his best film even though I'm a big fan of Bat- Batman Begins. Uh, so, you know, Dark Knight will probably be a five-star. I haven't read it for the podcast, but that'd be five. But this is nearly perfect. It's really, really fantastic. Uh, like I said, I don't think I have any quibbles about it at all. 
Um, I think the only thing I noticed, which is not a quibble, is that I think the movie went on a little longer than I thought that the end was going to be. But it wasn't anything where I was like, why did they do that? I thought there was an end point there and then it kind of went on to do something else to kind of finish a storyline up, which was not a problem. It's not a criticism, just something I noticed. Uh, but yes, Oppenheimer is fantastic. Everything that I read was correct. It is fantastic. It is one of his best movies. And of course, it's one of the best movies of the year. I'm sure it's going to be uh, nominated for dozens of Academy Awards. I have no doubt about it. So again, I'm giving Oppenheimer four and a half stars out of five. So again, definitely check it out in the theaters. It's a fantastic film. You will love it. Um, if you're a fan of Nolan, like I said, you'll love it as well. Uh, so definitely check out Oppenheimer. Four and a half stars out of five. All right. Again, thank you for listening to the show. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Threads. The handle is at BendYourEarPod. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and like the Facebook page, please. This is a one-man operation. If you're watching the show on Facebook or YouTube and would like to support the podcast, you can click on the QR code here on the top left, or you can go to the show's Twitter page at BendYourEarPod and click on the tip jar. This will help cover the cost of hosting the podcast. Thank you again for listening and have a great week.